Church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to our text for this morning? It's found in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And today we arrive at what scholars consider to be the central argument of the epistle. Having established, if you were with us, we saw this together last week, the gospel's truth defined as justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And before that, the apostle's thesis that his is the only gospel because he didn't receive it from men or by men, nor was he taught it by them, but rather he received it by a revelation from Christ himself. And so now Paul defends this gospel by rebuking and exhorting his readers for the next two chapters. Now, we're not even going to attempt to your great relief, to cover Paul's entire defense in a single sitting. So there's muffled applause and silent cheers, I know. We'll simply be addressing today chapter 3's first six verses, which hopefully you have found by now, Galatians 3, verse 1. And so I'd invite you to follow along as I read. Galatians 3, beginning with verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Let me first explain why I stopped in verse 6 and not verse 5. If you have an NIV like me or the Holman or an NASB translation, you'll notice that verse 6 serves as the opening line in a new paragraph, correct? The NIV has the word consider as introducing the new thought, which is then carried on through verse 9, while the Holman begins just as, and the NASB, even so, Abraham, etc., etc. However, if you have an ESV version of the Bible this morning, then you'll notice that verse 6 is actually the concluding verse of chapter 3's introductory paragraph, and that verse 7 then begins the new thought. So small differences in our text, granted, but differences nonetheless with grammatical significance, which is why I point them out. Now, for some translators, the reference to Abraham there serves to introduce a new thought, and therefore, verse 6, and then those that follow which speak of Abraham's children, verse 7, The gospel announced to Abraham, verse 8, and describe Abraham as the man of faith, verse 9. All of them stand together. Others, and this is the camp that I find myself in, they view verse 6 and its reference as illustrative of the point or principle that's being made previous in verse 5, where the point is basically that such and such is like that even as it was with Abraham. And we'll say more about what the such and such was and the use of Abraham to illustrate it later. But for right now, I just want you to understand, I wanted to make clear why we read what appears to be a single paragraph and then the opening sentence of that which followed. And so you don't think me that which Paul was calling the Galatians a fool. You fools! Now, have you ever been called a fool? You don't have to raise your hands. But the word that Paul uses here is one that refers to a failure of intellect of understanding or comprehension. It's not the absence of, 
but it's the failure of. And I believe that this is an important distinction to be made for a number of reasons. First of all, when we berate one another or we belittle each other, typically we use names that imply the non-existence of whatever trait it is we're calling into question. We'll say, you wimp, meaning you have no strength. You're so puny, you're, you're a weakling. You're a moron, there's no intelligence. You're a scaredy cat, there's no courage, right? I'm not going to continue. This isn't a class on how to offend and abuse verbally other people. But what we, when we describe others as devoid of that thing we're mocking. We, we, you know, and there's many ways that we do this. Most of the time, we do so to make ourselves feel better. Because we, to, at least to our minds, we exhibit a modicum of whatever it is that we're implying this other person, so, so-called whatever it is we've called them, they don't possess it at all. And so it's important to note, I think, that Paul isn't saying here that the Galatians are brainless. And rather, and this is a second point that then follows, Paul's use of this term fool suggests that what the Galatians are now espousing lacks that which what they previously believed possessed, namely logical coherence, intellectual consistency. In other words, that which they previously knew and held to was defined by the opposite of what they are now being described as by Paul. And then this leads us then to a third point of significance, which I believe is that by this use of the term fool, Paul is, in fact, complimenting the Galatians, but in a unique, one of those backwards, motivational-like manners. And so let me explain by the use of a, of a story. When I was in high school, I had a year of math. And basically, it was like pre-cal, and it was following the required four years or however many years it was that we were supposed to take. And so it was optional, but I took it anyways, and I immediately... <laughs> regretted it because my teacher was absolutely the worst. She was the worst when it came to explanation and exhortation. It felt like class was reserved for the kind of motivation that I think Paul is employing here because every day our teacher would remind us of how stupid we were, how there's no way you're ever going to pass the tests. We didn't think hard enough. We couldn't remember long enough or process fast enough. It was, it was br- brutal on the ego. And made me an intensely arrogant, and I still struggle with pride guy, it made me angry. I determined that I was going to prove that woman wrong. So I got extra help. I worked extra hard. And in the end, I passed with flying colors. And it was such a gratifying feeling. Can you relate? Such a gratifying feeling. I can still remember looking forward to seeing my teacher once our results came in so that I could smugly stuff them in her face and just say, See, you were wrong. And I remember like this was yesterday, so this isn't impacted me, you can tell. Your, your pastor's still getting over it. But I was at school, and she was coming out of the teacher's lounge. I could still see her coming out with the other math professor right beside her. She, and, and I was with one of my friends, and so we walked over, all set to stick it to her. And she caught us off guard. She preempted us. It was like this preempted strike. So how did you boys do? So we stupid dummies who'd never passed, showed her our grades. And before we could say anything, she declared, I knew you could do it. I, I never doubted. Her response was so out of left field, we didn't know how to respond. Couldn't even comment. I wish I could have seen my face because she just beamed and then she left. Walked away. As far as I could tell, feeling as accomplished as any teacher could whose students had done what she was paid for them to do, pass. I was gobsmacked. And yet, I couldn't fault my teacher's conclusion. I passed. Now, I'd certainly, I certainly didn't enjoy her methods, 
And there was doubt, at least in my mind, that she actually did think that I could do it. But after I did it, it didn't matter, did it? And I think in a way, this is what Paul is doing here. He's calling out the Galatians, not for being brain dead, but because they're not using the brains that they have, so to speak. Paul wants them to know that they've slipped up. They've fallen down. They've become confused and forgotten what, they, what had been clearly portrayed before their very eyes. They're fools, behaving as if someone has, in his words, bewitched them or, or cast a spell on them. Where this reference, I don't think, I don't, I don't think by this reference that the apostle is actually suggesting that an evil sorcerer, so to speak, is behind their behavior. Rather, he's suggesting that the source of what they're being led to believe is evil. Because as we've seen in weeks past, there, there's only one gospel, which Paul, as he insists, received from Jesus Christ himself. And thus, the lies that the Galatians are falling into have their origin not in God the Son, but in the adversary, Satan, the root of evil. And for Paul, it's, it's the world then that's living in a fantasy where by their goodness, they think they can find fulfillment. And church, this is a fact that we need to cling to daily because we live in a world doing everything in its power to convince us otherwise. And have you ever had friends look at you like you've lost your mind when you start to tell them about Jesus? Or had opportunities to speak to a coworker? about Christ, and you began, and as you did, you suddenly became aware of just how crazy what you were proposing would sound. Like Hannah, are the adults going to be eating body and drinking blood? I mean, you know, the, 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 our life's ultimate purpose is tied to some peripatetic Middle Eastern guy who, who lived some 2,000 years ago, was killed on a cross, crucified no less, before being buried in a tomb for three days. Oh, by the way, after that he rose. Have you ever struggled with doubt? When faced by teachings of Scripture, wondering if maybe this is just some escapist view of reality. I have, and when I have, I've found comfort and assurance in my faith, not in what I felt, something subjective, but rather in what I've read, that which is before my very eyes, clearly, consistently, and coherently portraying Jesus Christ crucified. That's the Scriptures. Friends, it says, one pastor theologian notes, the real fairy tale is not the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's the fantasy of godlessness. The most seriously bewitched people are those who don't believe in demons. The most deluding stupor in the world is caused by the sedative of secularism. Because if Christ is real, it's not his followers who are fools. And so Paul begins his argument by rebuking the Galatians as fools. And then in the verses that follow, I believe he provides two reasons why. With the first, they're contradicting Christ's work. They're fools because they're contradicting Christ's work. It says, Paul writes, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. For Paul, it was simply mind-blowing. That anyone could get caught up in legalism where, as we saw together last week, obedience to the law in legalism serves as this ladder by which we climb our way to heaven. The, the brutality of Christ's death on the cross displayed the horror of sin's offense, demonstrating how genuinely lost we are. There's, no, there's nothing that we, broken, sinful people, can contribute to salvation but sin. We're dead prior to Christ's work. 
of grace. And the stumbling block of the cross is our inability to change. It's as Paul expressed it in Romans 5, 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And so this is why Paul then later asks in Galatians 5, verse 11, Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. So if Paul preached a gospel by which people could contribute to their salvation, then there's no offense to my ego, and I'm not angry with the apostle. But that's not the gospel Paul preached, is it? And therefore, Paul was still being persecuted. And sadly, the Galatians had seen Christ crucified in the gospel, but now they were returning to the law. And church, I believe it is so easy for us to join Paul in his cry of, you fools, you fools. But I believe that the allure of legalism is as strong as ever. Now, we may not harp on the cultural distinctives headlining Paul's day, but we have our own rungs in the ladder of righteousness by which we climb our way to heaven, be it tithing or church attendance, mission outreach involvement, ministry team participation. We still fall prey to the siren song of self. We confuse acts of obedience which flow forth from lives transformed by the gospel with salvific essentials required for life eternal. Otherwise, why else would we become possessive of our ministry positions? Why would it matter who does what unless what we do matters as regards our salvation? Friends, when we begin to see acts of service as salvific, we'll freak out when someone takes them away or does them for us. Because in our minds, the one that's doing, those are the ways that we merit God's love, earn his favor, and win his grace. And now someone else is getting what we deserve. And that gets our goat along with our salvation, doesn't it? Church, Christ's death is a death knell to our pride. For if our salvation costs God's son his life, what could we possibly offer in exchange? It says, one pastor writes, that it should take the death of the Son of God to atone for my sin should shut my mouth forever and bring my life to an end. But that it was no less the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me awakens new life of hope and faith. The cross, what was sitting on top of our table today. The cross kills the self-serving me and awakens my heart to the glories of God's grace such that now all I do, I do out of faith in the God who loved me and gave himself for me. It doesn't matter what I do, whether in word or in deed, whether in the public eye or not, whether great or small, impacting many or few, rich or poor, married or widowed. All I do, I do for God's glory with the knowledge that my acts have no bearing on my standing before God, for all of that has been accomplished by Christ on the cross. This is why I believe Paul considered the Galatians to be fools. They were contradicting Christ's work on the cross. That's the first reason. The second reason was they were now contradicting the Spirit's work. They were contradicting the Spirit's work. Where this work referenced there, verse 2, is, I believe, one and the same as that described for us back in chapter 2, verse 20, that accompanies crucifixion with Christ, where I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. Now, the reason that I view this work as one and the same as that with the spirit referenced here in chapter 3 is because later when we get to chapter 4 verse 6, Paul writes these words of the spirit that we receive. Because you are sons, Paul writes, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So the spirit here in chapter 3 is Christ's spirit, whom the Galatians received by, and then Paul throws out that question, by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And the answer implied is clearly the latter. And thus, the Galatians, in their reversion, return to legalism, they were throwing into question all of the work accomplished for them by Christ's Spirit, whom they did not receive by obeying the law, but by believing what they heard. And I think at this point, this raises a question for us. Because you remember Paul, the apostle, sent not from men or by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with him, Paul is writing to churches. He isn't writing to unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. This letter is for Christ followers whose behavior is throwing into question the very gospel that brought them to life in the first place. So if the Galatians' actions are calling the Spirit's work into question, then we have to ask, well, what's the relationship between becoming a Christian and receiving the Spirit? Can one be a Christian and not have the Spirit? Is that why the Galatians were behaving as they are? And the answer is that they're one and the same thing. Becoming a Christian means receiving the Spirit. It's as Paul declares later when he writes to the church in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So, as Paul wrote to the Galatians, he wasn't writing to a church waiting upon the Spirit's arrival. The believers shared Christ's Spirit in common. And friends, this truth holds true for us today. If you're a Christian, meaning if you've confessed your sin, repented of it, and believed that Jesus is who he has declared himself to be, the Son of God, for your salvation, if you believe that, then you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. As Paul described it to the Corinthians in our Bible's first letter, chapter 6, verse 19. Your body is the temple of God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit who then Paul later tells the church in Ephesus serves as a seal, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance into eternal life for those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The moment you believe you're marked in him with this seal. So there's no waiting period. There's no special ceremony in which the spirit is endowed or bestowed. Becoming a Christian simply involves the coming of Christ's spirit to dwell in and work through then the believer. It's as Paul said. And as we noted, chapter 2, verse 20. The old self is crucified with Christ. And in its place, the risen Christ now comes to live. We're no longer our own. We've been bought by Christ and are now possessed by his spirit. And I believe that this leads us to another question then in light of all that Paul is addressing. If becoming a Christian means receiving the spirit and Paul is writing to Christians who are contradicting the same spirit's work, what evidence then? What evidence of the spirit's presence is there in my life? Is there something that we should see, could see, can see? Or is there something that we ought not to see? 
And in answer, one of my favorite theologians suggests the New Testament teaches that there are three kinds of evidence in answer to this question. All of them, interestingly enough, mentioned here in Galatians. And the first is given us in verse 5. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Now, clearly, Paul here is referencing the miracles that God would have been performing by his spirit among the Galatians, where these signs likely were similar to those that had been performed by Jesus himself. So we're thinking acts of healings here, exorcisms and the like, all of which would have given evidence to the Galatians that God's spirit had been poured out into their lives. But while this is a powerful evidence, Paul's, he's aware that such affirmation, while significant, it's still insufficient because... And he tells us this in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. So, in addition to these miracles, which can be manipulated and mislead, misleading, I believe we see Paul mention a second evidence, and that is the deep assurance that God is our Father. In chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 6, Paul writes, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And this cry is one that marks the Christ follower, this cry of Abba, Father. It marks the Christ follower because as Paul says to us in Romans eight fifteen, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you, and that's you, Christ follower, you Christian, you receive the spirit of sonship and daughtership. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself says or testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And we know from 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So children of God all have this deep assurance that they're saved. But there's a third evidence, because I believe that even assurance can be deceiving, can't it? If it's rooted simply in how I feel, feelings are subjective, and thus there's a third evidence that I believe we're given, and that is the fruit of God's Spirit. So well-known, famously listed, if you will, in chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control and against those things there's no law so basically what it all comes down to is love those who have the spirit will love where this love reflects that with which they've been loved so we're not talking about human love we're talking God's love and that's exactly what John the apostle said in his epistle dear friends let us love one another why for love comes from God everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And then just in case we're tempted in our humanity to redefine this ultimate virtue as little more than sappy sentimentalism, John goes on and he says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his son, one and only son, into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So what's the evidence of the Spirit's presence in a believer's life? Love. It's a question of great significance considering the Galatians' doctrinal debacle that we've been seeing together. 
a gathering of Christians so-called who formerly had been reflecting the gospel but had suddenly fallen back into legalism. How to know if they were spirit-filled and, and were Christians all filled with the spirit. And, and church, I would imagine that this morning these questions have struck a chord, haven't they? And if you're anything like me, I often struggle to reconcile the kind of things that I see and hear in others' lives with their supposed beliefs. Now, I frequently question the, the Christian faith of others when, as is the case here in our text, their actions aren't consistent with the teachings of Scripture. Where my concern, I hope, is as that of Paul's. It's not judgment for the sake of judgment. We're not called to judge. But rather that truth might be distinguished from lies that gospel might be distinguished from what is no gospel at all. Because I fear that there are a lot of churches in our city and around our, our nation even that where they say just doesn't, what they say rather, just doesn't tally with Scripture. And this is a big deal. It's not a big deal because of what I think of how these individuals or how I choose to view them, but it's a big deal because of what God thinks. And if their hope for eternal security is in a gospel that is no gospel at all, well, as we've seen, they remain under God's judgment. And unless there's a change, they'll spend an eternity in hell, separated from God forever. So can we remain silent when friends' lives share that inconsistency that's marked here by the Galatians? And I pray that our answer is a resounding no, no, which then leads us to a third question, I believe, as it pertains to the Spirit's work. And that is, how is the Spirit received? How is the Spirit received then? As Paul asks it, do, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And the answer is, believing. Believing. Paul takes the Galatians, uh, in a sense, in this passage, I believe he tries to take them back in their minds to his first visit as he would have spoken to them in the marketplace or preached to them in the synagogue, witnessed among them in the streets. There they would have heard Paul describe sin and define it by God's words in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Paul would have then led them to see God as the author of morality, of, of life, the measure for truth and standard of right and wrong who gave the law to his people so they might know what sin is. And then he demonstrated the significance of their sin and its offense against God's infinite holiness before he made clear God's solution to humanity's dilemma, that of, of being incapable of satisfying God's wrath. And thus God sent his only son, Jesus. And, and as the Galatians heard those words about Christ, their only hope, their hearts warmed. The words that they heard brought, brought life in, in ways that they couldn't have imagined. Where before they found themselves anxious and fearful regarding the future, now they found peace. Where before they'd been bitter and resentful about their past, now they had release. Without being even able to describe what took place or, or pinpoint its origin, the Galatians' lives were changed as they believed. And they believed what they heard just as Abraham before them. And this is where that such and such that I mentioned when we first started comes in. For Paul, the faith filling these Galatians, resulting in the Spirit's presence, marked by miracles, assurance, and fruit, was like that displayed by the patriarch, who, as we're told, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham's 
belief wasn't based upon anything he could do. From, for the promise that was made him was made outside of his control. All he could do was accept it. And this was how the Galatians began their journey with Christ. And this was how life in the Spirit was to continue. Life in the Spirit was going to continue. There was no beginning with faith and then shifting to works, starting in the Spirit and then conceding to the flesh. As Paul says, verse 3, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? And friends, this is a word that I believe we each need to consider closely for ourselves. As you remember here, as we've said, Paul isn't speaking to, well, he, he isn't speaking to new Christians. He's writing to people who have been at this for some time. This is men and women who are further down the road of discipleship, familiar with church speak and practice. These are people who've weathered, so to speak, a few business meetings. They've been on a few mission projects, but who are now in danger of trying to live their Christian life in a way that nullifies grace and that leads to destruction. Since we began in the Spirit, friends, we must keep relying on the Spirit. We can't succumb to the lie that God helps those who help themselves. We can't believe that we begin the Christian life by faith and then we advance in it by our works. That's drawing on the powers within ourselves to contribute to our salvation. And if we do this, then we've placed works in the site where only faith may reside. And that's as one pastor theologian notes, faith is the only response to God's word which makes room for the spirit to work in and through us. Flesh, on the other hand, is the insubordinate, self-determining ego which is the religious people's response to God's word not with reliance on the spirit but with reliance on the self. Now it can produce a vigorous, rigorous morality we often see that in church life, but it nullifies grace. Friends, the only question that matters for us as it pertains to our sanctification, thus our continuing journey in walking with Christ, the only question that matters is not what am I doing, but on who am I relying? And I pray that every person here is resting by faith in God's glorious gospel promise that we're daily calling ourselves back to faith and fighting against our fleshly desire to remove the stumbling block of the cross. Emmanuel, let's not be fools sacrificing faith for works, but let's demonstrate our love through obedience because Christ's righteousness is ours. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you have given us life in Christ. And there's this tension within us as, as men and women brought to life in which Christ, we've been crucified with Christ. So we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And yet we are still broken, fleshly people in the sense that we have a nature that is battling. God, would you keep this tension? But would you help us rest on grace? God, would you help us to live out our faith in obedience? Father, would you guard our hearts from comparing ourselves with others and judging that we might feel better about our own weakness and failure? Would you guard us from, from being a facade 
of thinking that the Christian life is about what I look like on the outside and therefore I come to worship and pretend like I'm doing well when I'm not. God, would you help us to be a place where the gospel is what is the medium in which we live, where we see one another with your eyes, where we love one another with your love, where but for the grace of God could we go when we see a brother or sister struggle. And so we stand alongside and we call and encourage and we love, and we love fiercely, unwilling to let those whom we have been brought to life with wander into error, drag the name of Christ down, and be fools, as Paul has said. God, would you give us the strength to love well and not allow our understanding of love to be dictated us by the world where it's all about me. Father, might we allow your word to determine, to define love for us, for that's the love that brought us to life. May they know that we are your people by our love. Father, we love you. And this morning, God, if there are those who have sensed in their heart a a call to respond to the love which you have shown us in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, Father, this, what a beautiful, what a beautiful testimony to the grace by which you save us. And Father, if there's those who, who have yet to find a place to belong, where they might be cared for and loved as a family that your word defines and describes would be theirs. Lord, may that be today. Lord, we just thank you that you give us clarity when we turn to your word. For when we leave and are bombarded by that which is in the world, we know how quickly we will be distracted, discouraged, we'll begin to doubt. Therefore, we don't root our faith in how we feel but rather in the words that you have given us that don't change, which are as you are. Thank you for these things in the name of the word, who is Jesus. Amen.